Go ahead, get your Bibles out. We're going to be in Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke today, as we're continuing our sermon series going verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> last week, last weekend, uh, I'll give away my age here for you, I had my 20-year high school reunion, so you can quickly do the math. I had my 20-year high school reunion, and uh, it was a sweet day, got to see a lot of old friends. But I'll tell you something that was interesting. As I was driving out, the, the reunion was out in Oak Brook. And as I was driving out there, I, uh, the car ride was interesting. I, I was driving thinking of all the people I'd be seeing or, you know, wondering which faces would be there and which ones wouldn't be there. And uh, the devil was doing some interesting things in my mind as I was driving out. You know, I didn't become a Christian until I was just leaving high school. And uh, I've got, you know, I've a lot of wonderful stories and great friends from high school and a lot of people that I'm totally looking forward to seeing. But there was some shame that the Lord was heaping on, or not the Lord was heaping on me, but there was some shame that was being heaped on me as I was driving out that way. I was thinking of particular faces. I was wondering if I'd see them or not. I was thinking of particular people that I owed an apology to and uh, wondering if they'd be there and wondering if I'd have the courage to bring up an awkward thing and say I'm sorry for the way I, <laughs> I behaved in high school. And what was coming over me was all like these waves of, I wonder what tonight's gonna be like and kind of waves of shame over some of the not super kind decisions I made in high school. You ever felt like that? Do you ever look back over your own story and, and you look back on some of the mistakes you've made, some of the, the things you've done that maybe weren't the kindest things or the, the ways you've responded in certain situations and, and when you think about them and you really get honest with yourself, there's a sense of, I wish I, wish I could do that over again. And then that turns into, oh, I hope I don't have to face that. That's called shame. I want you to hold on to that. We're gonna come back to that in just a little bit as we get into our passage today, as I think this unique passage digs deep into our identity of who we are in Christ and what we do with the failures in our life. We come today to a passage that most people would skip over. If you're doing a Bible reading plan and you're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, you get to verses 23 through 38 of chapter three and you read one verse and then you skip to the beginning of chapter four. And that's because this is a genealogy. This is telling you the lineage of Jesus Christ, all the different names of his family lineage. But I wanna show you today that every verse in scripture matters, okay? I wanna take a passage that you would be very prone to skipping over, and I'm gonna to try to draw out the meat from it, from it for, for you today and show you what we can take away from this to forge our faith, and I think there's a lot in it. And, uh, and so I hope you will stick with me, and I hope you'll stick with me as I do my best to read it to you right now. Some of these names are difficult, so bear with me. Luke chapter three, starting in verse 21. Let's begin just a bit before. Coming out of Jesus' baptism here. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semine, the son of Josech, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, 
the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikayim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <laughs> to Christ be the glory. I want to show you three deep implications from this text that I hope you will remember today. Number one, Luke demonstrates that Jesus has a legitimate claim to David's throne. What's with this genealogy? Well, number one is this. The writer of the Gospel of Luke is demonstrating to us that Jesus has a legitimate claim to David's throne. Now, this might sound snoozeworthy to you. Jesus has a legitimate claim to David's throne, but it's not. It's very important. Now, when we talk about Jesus, and we use the phrase Jesus Christ, what are we saying? Jesus Christ. Christ was not his last name. Christ is a term in the Greek that means savior. And it's a Greek term that is referencing an Old Testament Hebrew term, which was Messiah. So when we say Jesus Christ, what we're saying is Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Savior. Now, in order to fully understand why this passage is important and why, why it's important that David has a legitimate claim to the throne, that Jesus has a legitimate claim to the throne of David, we've got to have a sense of what the Messiah is and what the expectations of the Messiah were. If you could transport yourself back to first century Israel, about the time that the gospel writer Luke was writing this biography of the life of Jesus, there was a, a Jewish hope that had been building for centuries for a Messiah. And that Messiah, that hope, came out of the pages of Scripture. All through the Old Testament, we see these whispers that one would come who would redeem and rescue the people of God. Now, by the time you get to the first century, that had been kind of captured and turned into something it wasn't. The idea that most of the Jews in the first century held was that Jesus would come, or not Jesus, the Messiah would come, and he would rescue and redeem them from Roman occupation. They had a fairly tyrannical ruler over them, the Romans, and they weren't an independent nation like they longed to be. Israel had been taken over by Rome. But they looked forward to a day when that that mystery, that one that was whispered all throughout the Old Testament would come and would rescue them, would redeem them from the tyranny of Rome. That's what they were looking for. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, the whispers of what the Messiah would be were that. They were whispers. At times, there's some clarity about what the Messiah would be and what he would do, but certainly some of the details of it were veiled in the sense that it's almost like with the clarity of the New Testament, you can look back on the Old Testament and make sense of some of the verses and kind of say, how could you have missed it? I liken it to this. Today, as New Testament believers, there's great debate over how to interpret the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. 
there's a debate over essentially how the world's gonna end. <laughs> What's it gonna look like? There's three major views and those three major views can be broken up into 10 different views internally as well. And we debate, great-minded, faithful followers, scholars look at the book of Revelation and they have you know, some differing opinions on it. I have a very strong opinion, I think I'm right, but you know what, I could be, <laughs> I could be wrong. But why would it be that God would leave us with some mystery about how it all ends? Well, I think that part of the reason God might do that is because he was, he's veiling it from Satan. I think if Satan knows exactly the exact plans that Satan will end up following that will usher in the final new age of the new kingdom, he won't follow those things. And so God has a certain level of veiling that he has so that Satan functionally plays into God's hands by the end of the day. I think that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament. Some things that were written about who the Messiah would be, what he would do, they were a little bit veiled. And the reason they were veiled was so that, well, Satan would end up betraying Jesus and falling right into God's hands, crucifying the Savior, which would end up being the rescuing of the world. Satan knew it would play out that way. He probably wouldn't have gone to the hassle to do it. It would have saved himself a headache. Who was this Messiah? What were the expectations? Some of the passages you guys know, we talk about them, especially around Christmas time. We know that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. A woman who had never consummated a marriage, never had sexual relations, she would give birth to a child. In Daniel chapter two, we learn that the, the Messiah would come during the midst of the fourth of four major empires, the fourth being the Roman Empire. We actually have a timestamp, according to Daniel chapter two, when the Messiah would come and it would be in the midst of the Roman Empire. In fact, Daniel chapter two even goes further than that and tells us the exact day that the Messiah would stroll into Jerusalem, which happens to be the day Jesus walked into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Daniel tells us that exactly. Isaiah 53 is one of the more important passages of this. It talks about the Messiah being a suffering servant. Again, why is this important? We're, we're trying to get a sense of who was the Messiah supposed to be? Who is this Savior? Well, Isaiah 53 says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Messiah would be someone that would be wounded. If you look carefully at that language, he was pierced for our transgressions. That sounds a lot like crucifixion. The Messiah would be one who would be crucified. But through his crucifixion, peace would come to us. Later on, Isaiah 53 says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper. That's hinting at resurrection. He shall prolong his days after he has been put to grief. That's talking about death and then prolonging of days, coming back to life. The people of God, if they had the clarity of hindsight that we have looking through the New Testament, would have been able to see, we're looking for someone who's of the tribe of Judah, who's born in Bethlehem, who's born of a virgin. We're looking for someone who'd come during the Roman occupation, and we're looking for someone who would be crucified and rise from the dead. But there's more to it than that. Very importantly, in the center of the Old Testament hope was one who would take up the throne of King David. King David was one of the most important kings, if not the most important king in the Old Testament. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, a prophet says these words to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
Now David had a son named Solomon who did build a house for the Lord. He built the temple. You can go see the ruins of the temple premises where that building was originally built today. But Solomon's kingdom ended. And so the promise to David that one from his line would rule forever over a kingdom did not come through Solomon. It had to come through someone in his bloodline. This is who the Old Testament was waiting for. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The word branch, I hate throwing out kind of different languages for you here, but the word branch in Hebrew is nazar. Jesus was the nazarite, the nazarite. Jesus the nazarite, he was the branch. He was the one who came to fulfill the promises made to David. Now, the promise was that one who would come from the line of David, and what name do we find smack dab in the middle of Luke's genealogy of the Messiah? King David. King David. And so what's Luke doing here? Luke is saying that Jesus not only claimed to be the crucified and resurrected Messiah, but he had a legitimate claim to that. He is not some hypocrite who can't actually make the claim and stand by it. He is a descendant through his blood of King David. Now, the people of Christ's day thought that Jesus was coming to redeem them from Roman occupation. In fact, the Messiah came to redeem them from a far greater tyrant than Rome. He came to redeem them from their own sin. And their eyes were blinded to this. This is one of the things they kept saying to Jesus. Well, if you are him, then throw off the Roman occupation. If you're him, then come down from that crucifixion. Come down from that crucifix. If you're the Messiah, then perform these particular miracles. What they didn't realize is that Jesus was a savior, but not the kind of savior they expected. And I want to linger here for just a moment. What does it mean that he is a savior? What's he saving us from? He's saving us from the wrath of God that is poured out on all mankind as a result of our sin. He is the savior that saves us from God. He saves us from the wrath of God. Now why is there wrath of God? There's wrath of God that's poured out on all mankind because of our sin. Let's break that out with clarity. There's three different types of sin. There's sins of commission. That's the actual actions that you take. The wrong things you do, the wrong things you think, the wrong things I feel, the wrong things I think, those are sins against God for which there is an eternal wrath awaiting us. They're sins of omission. That's the good that you fail to do, the good that you omit to do. When God places you in a certain circumstance and you have an opportunity to do the right thing, but you don't do the right thing for the wrong reasons, There's an eternal wrath laid up for those who commit sins of omission. And then there's original sin. Original sin, we've inherited a sinful, corrupt nature. And out of the heart of every human ever born flows all the wrong corruptions and pollutions of the soul that end up becoming actual sins that we actually commit, but we are guilty for our original sin as well. And because of our wrong and corrupted heart, because the heart is set wrong, like a blade on a saw that's been set wrong and can't cut the log the right way, because we are set incorrectly, there is an eternal wrath of God prepared for all of those who have broken his command. And that's everybody. Now, most people at that part of my preaching would say something like this. They'd object. They'd say something like this. Is not our sin a lighter issue than deserving an eternity of wrath? And maybe if you don't say that, maybe you've thought that. I know I've thought that before. 
Is not our sin not as severe as what you've just described, Rafe, to receive from God an eternal wrath, to truly need an eternal savior? That's what the question is saying. Is sin so bad that we actually need a savior? Let me give you three responses to that. Number one, do not the scriptures warn us over and over again that there is an eternal wrath of God prepared for those who are sinners? Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then he, the judge, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jude chapter one, uh, Jude verse seven. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The scriptures teach with great clarity what awaits those who have never placed their faith in the Savior. Second, your sin is before an eternal holy God. Every sin we ever commit. If you are to come up to me right now and harm me in some way, let's just say you, you, you punch me in the face. There, there's, there's consequences for that. But, but if you punch, for example, the President of the United States in the face, the consequence for punching him in the face and punching me in the face are different. We hold a different authority. We hold a different level of value, okay? You punch him, you're gonna end up in big trouble. How much more so for the eternal Godhead when you commit sin against the highest authority whom there is no higher authority. He is the eternal, unchanging, perfect God who wove you together in your mother's womb and when you rebel against him is not the, the punishment for the violation greater eternally? Yes. Third, consider Christ on the cross. If God did not spare Jesus, the bloody, terrible death he endured for the consequences of our sin, do you think he will spare you? Again, what is the question that's being asked? And I, I pose this because this is what most people today would come back at me with when they hear me preach that we need a savior. We need the savior, not just any savior. We need the one that God said is capable of forgiving all of our sin and he must be born through the line of David. When we say we don't need a savior, is not God's wrath, is not, is not that old fashioned? Is our sin not, is, is it not lighter than to deserve an eternal weight of God's wrath? What we're saying is we don't need a savior. But I am telling you today, all of history and all of God's word stands against you. We do need a savior. We need him to save us from the great tyranny of our own sin over us. And he has, and he has the final claim to be able to do that. Jesus, our Messiah. Number two. Luke demonstrates that Jesus is a global savior and not just a Jewish savior. Now that might sound strange, so let me see if I can make sense of this for us. The Gospel of Luke is written in two parts. We've got the Gospel of Luke, and then a couple books later, if you were to skip forward two books, you have the book of Acts, which tells of the growth of the church, starting in Jerusalem. When the gospel first broke out, it was a sect within Judaism. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, but the promise was is that through this Jewish Messiah, the hope of life with God and reconciliation with God and the life that is truly life and eternity with God would come not just to the Jews, but would go to all nations. All the nations that had fallen away from God would be restored to God. So you gotta have a little bit of a background story, the story that Jesus found himself in. If you go back in the Old Testament, what was God up to? What was he doing all through the Old Testament? Well, you go back, and in Genesis chapter 12, we meet this man named Abraham. He's the father of all major religions. 
Jews trace their history to him. Christians trace their history to him. Even Islam traces their story to him. Though they've changed the stories in the Quran to change them to be their own versions of the stories, and they're, they're off. The true story is in the Old Testament. But they trace their story back to Abraham. What was Abraham? God, after the, the falling of the nations at the Tower of Babel, all the nations are spread out. They've all apostatized. They've all given themselves over to idolatry. God picks out one man, Abraham, from the nations, one pagan guy, and he takes his family. He says, through you, I am going to bless all the nations. They've all gone away from me. Now, Abraham, I'm going to do something new in you. I'm going to bless you, and through you, the nations will be blessed. We use this language regularly. We're blessed to be a blessing. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What was God doing through Abraham? He was reaching those who had fallen away from God from the fall. He was establishing one nation that all the other nations would look in and see their laws and see their godliness and see the way they loved God and the, and the fruit of a nation that was on fire for the things of God. And the other nations would say, we need some of that. But Israel failed at that task. We know that they failed so bad that they ended up taking on the exact same sins of the pagan nations around them. At one point, Israel ends up worshiping a false god that the, the way that false god was worshiped was by offering live children as an act of worship to it, a practice that in our day today we continue through the work of abortion. That when, when nations are, are normalizing the, the taking of life of children, that's the bottom rung of a culture that's gone completely defunct, right? And so God then says to Israel, okay, I'm going to redeem this story but it's not gonna be that way. There's gonna be a Messiah who's gonna actually fulfill these promises. Israel failed at the mission, but God didn't. If you look at this genealogy, look with me here real quick. Who's the last person on the list? It goes all the way, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It goes all the way back to Adam. If you compare Luke's genealogy to Matthew, if you keep a finger here and you flip your Bible back to Matthew chapter one, two books previously, the gospel writer Matthew has a genealogy as well. But where does he go to? He traces it back and he stops at Abraham. Matthew's saying, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. He fulfills all the promise of the Jews. Luke is different. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Why? Because all of us are ultimately in Adam. That's where we ultimately came from. We were born in Adam, but Jesus is now the new Adam. And he is the rescuer, not just of the Jewish line, but for all the nations that have gone astray. And that's 99.9% .9 of the people in this room, by the way, who are not of Jewish origin. He is a Messiah for all nations. Now, R.C. Sproul comments on this. He says, Luke is showing the universality of the mission of Christ. Jesus Christ is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for the Romans, and for the Greeks. Jesus is the new Adam, the author of a new humanity, the one who comes to redeem and to reconcile men from every tribe and nation, not merely giving himself as a ransom for the lost sheep of Israel, but pouring out himself as a substitute for the sinful children of Adam's race. What does this mean for us? It's one thing to know this. Okay, great. Jesus is not just a Jewish Messiah, but he's a Messiah for all the nations. How does that change us? Well, let me give you one way. Most of you who know me, you know my, our family story. We have two precious adopted daughters. We've got three daughters, two of them are adopted. And uh, if, if you don't know, our two daughters that are adopted are African-American. 
And so there's a, there's a wonderful little story, and I hope I get this right, Sarah. You know, sometimes I tell stories, and I'm like 99% right, 1% soft. And Sarah reminds me when I get home. They were in class one day in their little preschool class. You know, so my, my ethnic heritage, I'm, you know, majority Italian and British. That's mostly who I am, Italian and British. And uh, so my two little girls are in preschool one day, and in their class, they're talking about their family origin. Like, where are you from? What's, what's your, I, I don't know how this came up in their preschool class, but it did. What, what's your family origin? And, and, and our sweet little joy bird, she, she says, well, I'm Italian. And there's something overwhelmingly beautiful about that. Now, don't get me wrong. Our, our children are going to be, they're going to know who they are, and we're going to walk them through this part of their story very faithfully as they age, and that's part of what we'll do. But in that moment, something beautiful is being seen. They've been adopted into a family, and they have taken on the identity of their new family. They know who they are. They're a chinnery. Look at this genealogy. That's who you are, son and daughter of the king. You were adopted into that family. M Moses, Moses is your story. The way he delivered, God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery, that's your family heritage. When God raised up David and he gave him all the promises of a kingdom and, and, and Israel would be his and that they were to be a nation, that's your story. And when your people failed at the task, the family that you have been adopted into, God raised up a Messiah to then redeem the story and win for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. This is your story. Do you see it that way? I... I We have to have a childlike faith. I, I, I listened to a pastor recently. He's, he's a very well-known pastor, Andy Stanley. And uh, I have no problem calling out false teachers when I see them. And Andy Stanley ha has a legacy of doing, saying some wonderful things. And, I, and I, I don't quite know what to do with Andy right now because he's on a string of saying some very poor things. But one of the things he said recently that was atrocious, he said, we have to detach ourselves from the Old Testament. And I, I didn't know what to do with the video when I saw it because what I'm telling you is the exact opposite Go to the Old Testament. See your story. Understand your family. Know your identity. And don't build an identity apart from it. You have the prophets. You have the kings. You have the hope. You have Adam and Eve and, and all the line. It's all your story if you've been adopted into it. And if you're a Christian, build your life on it and don't budge. That's who you are. It's your family. You're Italian. The Italians had a double amen on that one. I see two over three of them right here. Number three, Luke demonstrates that God uses broken stories for his glory. Here we go. Luke demonstrates that God uses broken stories for his glory. You know, this, this genealogy is interesting. Most of the names on it, you don't know anything about them. We don't, I, this is the only time they ever come up. Majority of them, I think there's over 70 names listed here. Majority of them, you, you never see them again. But some of them, you do. Some of them, you know their story. I mean, kind of go through these for a second. I mean, think of the people that we see in here. We, we see Adam. That guy made a mistake, didn't he? <laughs> you know, if you go a few later, you've got, you've got Lamech in here. If you go from the bottom, anyone know what Lamech did? He killed a man and boasted of it. 
He, he's the first truly, like, I'm choosing to be wicked guy. You go through here, you got Abraham. Abraham had some great moments. He certainly had amazing moments. He, he was willing to follow God to do something that, that was impossible. When, his, when, when God told him to sacrifice his one beloved son, Abraham went up the mountain ready to do it, and the Lord stopped him in the last second. But David, or Abraham also made some mistakes. He doubted God's goodness. God promised him he'd have a son in his old age, and then he didn't trust God, and so he ended up marrying a second woman, becoming a polygamist, which caused all kinds of problems in his family, having another son through that, which now the Muslim faith traces their roots to that son. Talk about a generational problem. You know, that guy made some mistakes. How about David? King David, the one we just talked about. 2 Samuel verses 11, uh, chapter 11, verses two to three, highlights a low point in King David's reign. His men are out of battle. You know the story, David and Bathsheba. The great King David, his men's out at war. He stays home, taking it easy. He's up on top of his palace, which is the highest point in Jerusalem, and all his mighty men would have had houses right around the highest point in Jerusalem. So as he's walking out on the temple palace, he looks down, and he sees a woman bathing in the courtyard of her house. Now, that would have been a normal thing back then because all the men were out of town, and the houses are constructed with fenced areas. There's no air conditioning. It's very hot in Jerusalem, right? So where do you bathe? Where, 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 where does this happen? Well, if there's a wall around your house, it's completely safe, as a woman, when all the men are gone, to bathe outside. Unless there's a guy who's not there at the highest point, who's not supposed to be there, who's standing at the highest point walking on the temple. And he's looking down like this. Men, where are your eyes? Right? Well, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now pause, who's Uriah? Uriah is one of David's best friends. One of his 30 mighty men that he's been in battle with. There's stories of Uriah in the scriptures. They camped out under the stars together. They fought people together. They, they, they fought back to back in battle together. When you bleed with somebody, you're knit to them. That was, that was Uriah. You know what David does? He lusts after her, finds out who she is, then calls her up to the palace and has an affair with her. Gets her pregnant. Then he's got to figure out what to do. Great, now I've made a mistake. This is King David. Now he's got to figure out what to do. What do I do? Well, at that point he doesn't stop because lies beget lies. Sin begets sin. Brokenness begets brokenness. Now he's got to cover his tracks, but there's a husband. So he calls Uriah back. He says, Uriah, let me get you drunk. Go home to your wife. Uriah is a man of honor. He won't sleep with his wife while his men are on the battlefield. So Uriah, David doesn't know what to do now. So he writes a letter, puts it in Uriah's hand, and in the contents of the letter, writes this, 2 Samuel 11, verses 14 to 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Joab was the commander of his army. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Sends Uriah back with his own death sentence. Uriah is killed in battle. Now he can marry Bathsheba and claim that the child was had in wedlock. Despite that, God would use David. You want to talk about broken stories? You want to talk about wickedness? That's pretty bad. That's pretty, that's pretty low on the bar in terms of sins that we see committed in the scriptures. And here we have David being used, turning that story around, redeeming it. 
What do all these people have in common on this list? Every single one of them. Every one of them are sinners who live in a sinful culture who might have made some decent decisions in their life but also made a whole lot of bad, broken decisions. They were sinful men, sinful women who lived in a sin-filled world and faced all kinds of difficult decisions in their life. Sometimes they got it right and very often they got it wrong. And yet, for many of them, God redeemed their story and you find them in here as an example of how God can redeem stories. Now, I wanna linger here for just a little bit and I think this is where we need to really do some heart work on ourselves this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, common passage that I quote in this church. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is in those words, but such were some of you. Such were some of you. Can you imagine David reading that passage? Such, yes, he'd say, yes, that's who I was. I killed a man, I killed my friend, I had an affair. Such was I, but I stand in the blood of Jesus Christ. God's law remains the standard by which we will all be judged, and we've all fallen short. And if we do not stand in the blood of Jesus Christ, then we will fall on our judgment day quicker than Goliath fell before David. It'll be over, because we will be standing on our own power, and there is no power in that. But Christ grants you an entirely new story, and he grants you a new nature. Now, we get this wrong in two ways, and let me walk us through how we get this wrong. Some of us know this here. We get that here. Jesus forgave us, but we don't understand it here, and this is where it's got to get to. Go back to my story. When I was driving out to my, uh, my high school reunion, what, what was I doing in that moment? When I, was, when I was listening to heaps of shame coming on me, I was rejecting the gospel that I claimed to live into. Why? Here's the first mistake we make. Many of us have shame and regret over the sin in our life or the former sin of our life. Let me tell you how this works. Some of us have shame over former sins before you knew Jesus. That was what I was experiencing in the car that day. Some carry exorbitant amounts of shame and regret over their sins from their former life before they knew Christ. They find their mistakes oftentimes cripple them. In a spiritual sense, they're walking through life with a big chain and spiky ball in the end, and wherever they go, they just see a wrecking ball traveling behind them, and they're afraid to acknowledge it, but the reason they're having problems in relationships, the reason they're having problems in their marriage, the reason they're having problems in church, the reason they're having problems at work, the reason they can't manage their finances correctly, the reason is because they've got this stuff back here that they haven't dealt with. And what Freud wants to have you do is go into your psychosis and try to find out the things that were wrong with you. But what the gospel offers you to do is to look at Jesus who's done away with your sin and to stand new in Jesus. He's the final authority. He's the final one who has the final say. And he has declared, if you are in Christ, the old is gone. You stand new in Jesus It doesn't mean there's no scars from that, but what it does mean is that that no longer defines who you are. You are someone new. When David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, listen to what David finally does. After all of that sin, 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What a sweet little verse. If you're in Christ, 
whatever heinous sin you committed before coming to Christ, you may have, you may have made David look like a saint. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you stand fully forgiven in Christ, and this does not define you. You're in Christ. Second, some carry shame with them over current sins. Now, I want to work through this carefully. There's two edges to this, and I want to balance it delicately. Some carry shame not over former sins from knowing Jesus, before they knew Jesus, but over their current lack of holiness that they're experiencing right now. They find themselves stuck in patterns of sinful behavior, stuck in patterns of sinful thought, stuck in patterns of brokenness that they keep quiet and they don't share with anyone else in the church because they fear that if anyone else in the church knew what was actually going on in this mind of theirs, they would question if they were really Christian or not. And so they walk around with this hidden part of them. What they're really doing, they're like the two-faced from Batman. They've got this one face that they bring to church with them. But if ever you were to actually see this other side of them, what they think you'd see is this horrified, like zombie-looking face if they only knew. So they only ever show you this part of them. And they're walking around with all kinds of shame. And then what happens to you when you walk around and you don't confess your sins to one another, and when you're in this battle with, with holiness and you're fighting and you're, you're, getting, you're winning one day, you're not one day, but you're keeping it all quiet, you're ashamed of that part of your life, you end up having no confidence in your faith. There's no assurance. See, assurance of faith is a confidence that you know who you are in Jesus and what's the world going to throw at you? Then what are they going to throw at you? You've got heaven. You're secure. That's called assurance of faith. The Christian who has shame over ongoing battles with sin has no assurance of faith. They're like a soldier who's getting ready to go to battle, going ready to storm the battlefield, and all their men are going with them, but he's got battle fright, and as the men go out with him, he finds himself just shaking, curled up in the fetal position on the ground, just ashamed that he didn't have the courage to go out. Why? Be because, be because he's not standing in who he is. He he's been trained. He's been equipped. He's been prepared. He's got his men by his side, but he's pretending that he's all alone and that he, he, he can't do this thing on his own. You don't go out in the Lord's strength. You're going out sometimes like a, like a soldier who's lost. Christian, as long as you are battling with sin, that is a good sign. You have a new nature in Christ. You've been born again. You're not who you once were. And the old nature will claw at you and try to tell you you are not that new person. And they'll try to bring you down. But as long as the battle's there, my fear is when the battle's not there. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But if you are battling, that is a sign that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. And, and what Satan wants to do, the Satan, the father of lies, he wants to mock you. He wants to call you a coward. He wants to call you all these kind of shame-filled voices and tell you if you were to share that with the people in your church, that they would say, that's, that's not a Christian. They put an arm's length up to you. And what I want to say is, if this church is not the place that you can't confess your sins, then we have much deeper problems in this church than we'd like to admit. We, we, we need to be a confessing community. That's what releases us from our sin. That's where accountability takes place. The battle is good. The battle is sweet. But there's a third condition. The second big mistake is that sometimes our own sin and the sins of society don't bother us at all. The person I just described is someone who's striving after holiness, but they're in battle with it. They recognize their sin, and they want it, but they're ashamed of ongoing sin. That's a condition of a believer. But sometimes, sometimes people 
get so hardened in their sin that they don't care about it anymore. There's no pursuit of holiness. They've just settled in for the long haul of sin. Authentic Christians always battle with sin. They never get complacent with it. We don't because we know that sin is an offense to the holiness of God. And God forbid that we should put an affront to him. We're his. We've been chosen by him, filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, given all the spiritual armor. We've been given a sweet family church. We've been granted inheritance in the saints, and we're just going to live as if we're heathen? We're going to live as if our life hasn't been ransomed from the grave? Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Some of, it, some of us in this room today need to be awakened from our sleep. We, our conscience is, is barely awake or alive. And I have to ask the question, if you are okay with ongoing sin, unrepentant, just moving forward, and you are taking the title of Christian, are you a Christian? And if not, then receive Jesus today and enter into the battle. He does not want to leave you stuck in a place of never overcoming sin. The battle is a marker of faithfulness in Jesus. A lack of battle is a marker that maybe you haven't actually accepted him yet. Jesus wants to do that work in your life today. This is a hallmark of Christianity. And so scan your heart. Let me ask you these questions. Are there any areas of your life where you are just complacent with sin, where sin has a foothold, and where you've grown numb numb to it? Reading a wonderful Puritan book by William Gurnall right now. He says this, he says, soul, he's referencing Abraham taking Isaac to, the, to go sacrifice. And he says, soul, take thy lust, thy only lust, which is the child of thy dearest love, thy Isaac, the sin which has caused most joy and laughter, from which thou hast promised thyself the greatest return of pleasure or profit, as ever thou lookest to see my face with comfort, lay hand on it and offer it up pour out the blood of it before me, runt the sacrificial knife of mortification in the very heart of it. (laughs) This is what we do to sin, Christians. When we see it in our life, we wage war with sin. We go to battle. We see it, we hate it, and we put accountability around it, and we stand in Christ, and we let Christ bring victory over it, but we do not grow callous to it. Is there anywhere where you're callous to it? And number two, is there anywhere where you're just carrying shame around with you today? If that's you, if you're you're in here right now and you're thinking, I hear you, Rafe, but I just would never share some of that stuff with people in my my life. That's, That's a little too private. I want you to understand the gospel today. Jesus has freed you from that shame. You are new in Christ. He went to the cross for all of it. And you have a church family whose sins, I assure you, when you look across the aisle, are just the same as yours. Every one of us are battling these things together, right? In one degree or another. There's victory, there's failures, but we come alongside each other and we charge forward, share with each other. And so this seemingly boring genealogy of Jesus Christ might just have had something to teach us, huh? Number one, Jesus meets the requirement of the law to be the Messiah. Number two, Jesus is a global savior, not just a Jewish savior. And number three, praise God. God uses broken stories for his glory. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the sweetness of walking with Christ. This is a gift that is not our own. You've given it to us. Lord, I pray for those in this room that have heavy consciences right now over callousness to sin, perhaps wondering if they have truly accepted Jesus. I pray in this room that there would be miraculous belief in Christ today, 
that before they leave, they would make the commitment to follow Jesus, to trust in him, and to not be callous with sin, to not be numb to abominations in their life, but to live the life that's truly life, submitted to Christ. I pray that you bring new life in this room, and to those that are walking in shame today, Jesus, I pray you'd grant them that freedom that is found only in Christ. Give them new life. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.